you have one life. And if you don't do the best and all that you can in this one life, then you're wasting your life. My life could have gone either way at any moment. The area we lived in was, it was unpredictable and uncertain. Uh, you could easily walk out your door and catch a bullet. I did not want to be another statistic. I've seen the gutter, what it looks like, and I've seen what uber wealth looks like. At the end of the day, we are the masters of our fate and the captain of our soul. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Welcome back, lovely neighborhood. It is so nice to be back in your ears after a bit of an extended break. I ended up taking a few more weeks off than originally planned because my brain just didn't feel quite ready to bring its yay game again. And I'm so glad that I did because I don't think you really do your best work, or I certainly don't when I push through that feeling. And so often you also realize the deadlines you're trying to meet are artificial or you made them up yourself. So thank you so much for your patience as I kept pushing it back. And this episode is absolutely worth the wait. While there's so much to talk about between the end of last year and the start of this year, I won't talk too much now as we have the first of a new, more conversational segment coming soon when I'll have many more words for you. So for now, allow me to introduce our first guest for the year, Donald Betts, who is also our first guest ever with a political background, as well as the first who moved into law to seize his yay rather than away from it. We recorded this just before the break last year, and again, I'm I'm so glad that I waited to edit and release this one now because I too needed to hear this with fresh ears at the start of this year to get my motivation back and I can't wait for you guys to as well. As you have undoubtedly figured out about me, I am inspired by every single one of our guests in all different ways, but occasionally I get truly bowled over and there are so many reasons why I think Don will do the same for you. From his resolve to escape the life of gun violence and gang wars that he grew up in, which very few of us can relate to or comprehend, to becoming the youngest ever senator to serve in the history of the state of Kansas in the United States, and then from leaving politics to find his yay in law to the ridiculously romantic way he speaks about meeting his wife. Oh, there is just so, so much that blows me away about Don. But he tells it so beautifully himself with remarkable humility, self-awareness and the manners of an absolute gentleman. So I will stop myself there and let you listen for yourself. Donald Betts, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I'm so, so excited to have you on the show. First of all, how are you going? I'm well, you know, just finished up law school and admitted it to practice and I'm just elated, but I'm exhausted and I'm I'm relieved that it's over, but I'm I'm looking forward to the journey ahead. <gasps> Congratulations. This is so exciting. You are the first person we've had on the show. Obviously, I mentioned before, I think you already know I've transitioned out of law, which led to this whole seizing the yay idea. And you're the first person who's transitioned into law after your first career. Yes, definitely. And it's uh, it's it's a great experience, especially 
you know, coming from the United States and studying Australia law. It's been a remarkable journey and uh, I just look forward to it, you know, to see what happens. And the, the benefit about being a lawyer is that you have the access you know, so much access and, you know, how to do the research and, and you, you know, the law and you know, the importance of it. So uh, even in your, in with what you're doing, it, I'm sure, you know, you utilize some of the skills you picked up in law school. Absolutely. I think it is one of those platforms that can launch you into anything because I don't think lawyers know anything. We just know how to find the answer to anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. Were you admitted? Could you do your ceremony during COVID? Oh, no. Uh, so we were, I, I signed the role in the papers electronically. <gasps> no, you know, pomp and circumstance, no uh, photos with the family, you know, we, we're going to have to uh, play Hollywood and, and get out there and try to figure out how to get the photos. But more than anything, it's over. I've completed my goal, one of my goals, and I didn't really miss anything. I think it was an honor to complete this degree in 2020 because it just sets us apart from anyone else. You know, you were admitted in 2020, which means you didn't get what every lawyer in Australia received. And that was, you know, actually attending the Supreme Court and having the Chief Justice read you in. And uh, we won't get that. We did. I did receive a video from her today. I haven't had a chance to watch it. Oh, my it yet, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to make an appeal for special circumstances to get you back in with like the full, get someone to get in the gown for you just so you can have the photo. <laughs> I would love that. I think my partner, is, he's flirted with the idea about doing that. So we'll see it at the Christmas party on Friday if that really comes to pass. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we kick off, I start every episode with a little icebreaker, which is just to ask ask what the most down-to-earth thing is about you. And it's always a bit more of a challenge for people who have a Wikipedia page, firstly, you're very famous, Uh-oh. have a lot of firsts to your name as well, the youngest Kansas senator ever, yeah. you know, lots of other incredible achievements. I think you were the first African-American to complete the JD yeah. in Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, already on a pedestal right up there uh-huh. and You've been an amazing voice through the American election in our news. So, again, I'm very, very lucky to have you here today. What's something really normal about you? Um, I'm just a down-to-earth type of guy. I just, you know, I I prefer to take off all of this these accolades and just relax with everyday folks. You know, um, most of my friends are either senior citizens or... Um, <laughs> Are folks so far away from the legal profession that it just keeps me balanced. Um, I spend a lot of good time with my kids and my wife and my, my mother's visiting here. So uh, just chill time at home if I'm not working. Normally I'm working, you know, even when I'm not working, I'm working. But uh, I just I just like to uh, relax and chill out, you know, go to basketball games and and uh, and play a little chess with my daughter and and just, you know, just chill you out. You play chess? Yeah, you have to play chess in this game. You know, the po- politics and the law, you know, you need to know how to protect the king. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is what I love so much about these conversations is, you know, when you're on the news or when you get interviewed in much shorter form media, no one gets to find out. They only hear the glossy title version of who you are and they don't find yeah. out that you love chess with your daughter and that you, you're normal and love to chill out. <laughs> you know, I, I was... I'm glad, you know, because I, I I am a normal guy. You know, I just, I have this philosophy that you have one life. And if you don't do the best and all that you can in this one life, then you're wasting your life. 
So uh, make a full life out of it. No complaints, no excuses. Just get it done. Make it happen. Oh, my gosh. Well, we can hang up right now because that was absolutely (laughs) (laughs) already incredibly moving. (laughs) Another thing that I think really humanizes people is to go through the whole story of how they ended up where they are. And when we do meet you now, we walk into your life with a lot of purpose and direction and gratitude and grounding, you know, at this stage of your life, it's easy to look back with hindsight at all the decisions you made and all the crossroads you were at. But I love to remind people that no one wakes up knowing what they want to do. No one wakes up at the end of the story. Everything is a stepping stone. And there are so many chapters along the way that don't get as much airtime. So for people who are feeling a bit lost or not sure what their place is in the world, it's always reassuring to hear that most of us have been through that before we got to where we are now. Exactly. So the first section is called Your Way to Yay, where we trace back from the very beginning how you got, I call it your path yay, how you (laughs) got to where you are now seizing your yay. So take it all the way back to, you know, Wichita and your first career and how, who you, what you were like at school, what you thought you wanted to be and how you started your first career, which isn't obviously the one that you're in now. (laughs) Well, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I guess um, you never know what, like you said, you never know what path life is going to take you on. My mother often tells me I was often a very caring little boy, always helping out, helping her with my brother and um, anyone that needed help, very caring and loving. Um, But I was also very protective of of my family members and uh, my friends and my cousins and those that were around me. The first time I got involved in some type of elected office was the second grade at Hyde Elementary School. I read that. <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, my first teacher, favorite teacher was Charlotte Baldwin. Uh, right now she's very old and she's, she's in a nursing home and I keep in contact with her son and let him know how much she, how much of a role she played in my life, even at that tender age. Uh, so I became a uh, state, a, uh, not state rep- a, a, a class <laughs> representative in my school. And that was the first launch of uh, political, uh, the taste of politics, you know, actually running a, a small campaign, making signs and pasting them all over the lockers and the, and the walls in the school building. So that was the first test uh, of my ability to lead. And then along the way, when you jump into that type of leadership at such a young age, it becomes part of what you want to do moving on. So every grade after that, I sought to get involved in a student council, student government, human relations, the law <laughs> club, all throughout my elementary school and junior high and high school years. I, I aimed to uh, get involved in that student government life. I was in the orchestra and the anything that kept me out of trouble. See, I grew up in a, a very violent uh, community in Las Vegas after moving from Kansas to, to Wichita. The area we lived in was, it was unpredictable and uncertain. Uh, you could easily walk out your door and catch a bullet. It's just mm-hmm. as easy as that. I can remember the first week that we lived there, my mother was on top of us, my brother and I, as gunshots rang outside of our window. Uh, I can remember within the first month or two, I got jumped uh, by a gang because I was wearing a red sweater. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so my life could have gone either way at any moment. But it, there were neighbors around me, 50, 60, 70-year-old neighbors that I found refuge, and I would take out their trash and 
uh, rub their feet or try to braid their hair or comb their hair, <laughs> wash the dishes and just keep company. And I learned so much wisdom from those, those elders. And I utilize a lot of what they said and I can repeat it and hear it in my mind when I come into a circumstance. I can remember Miss Perkins or Miss uh, Charlie May or Miss Luann uh, or Mr. Johnny speaking into my ears. My grandfather, a reverend of a church, I can remember a lot of these, these tips that they may have thought it was just going in and out, but it stayed within. And I carried those messages with me throughout my life. And uh, after graduating from high school, and another first, I was the first in my class to graduate from high school in that neighborhood, in that area. Everyone either dropped out, uh, teen pregnancies, or were murdered. Oh, my God. If not incarcerated. So I made it out. And and I think that was the, the biggest challenge for me. And then that's when I moved back to Wichita, Kansas, to start school at Friends University, where I eventually became uh, the first student body, African-American student body president in the 100-year history, the first Mr. Falcon, I uh, served on the football team, the jazz band, the chamber orchestra. So that that youth of staying out of trouble by being involved, you know, and, and in high school, I worked at the, at the casinos. Anything I had to do to stay out of that, that toxic, violent, gang-ridden environment, I did. Anything to stay on the positive and veer away from the negative I got involved in. And, and that has been a trend for me, even in my adult life today. And then that's why I was able to grasp and get involved because I was trained by a village to become a man of courage and I guess uh, compassion for others. Oh my gosh, I have absolute goosebumps. That is just so incredible. <laughs> and I think it's, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, now in Australia as a father, it's a very different landscape. And there are, of course, risks and dangers on the street for young children, but the gang culture is not nearly as pervasive here. Oh. You know, and it's hard for us to comprehend just how difficult it was for you to get through childhood, let alone, you know, children anyway face so much, you know, crisis of identity and who am I and where, what do I want to do? But on top of that, facing gun violence and constant so, you know, a constant environment of violence to come through that is, I can only imagine, requires an extraordinary resilience in a young child. Well, you often hear, I don't know if you've heard about the Divine Nine and Kamala Harris being a member of the Divine Nine. So yeah. she's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha. I'm a member of Alpha Kappa, uh, Kappa Alpha Psi. But Kappa Alpha Psi, when I was in high school, had a program called the Kappa Leadership League. And the Kappa Leadership League was designed to encourage academic achievement and community service. And part of those, those men of Kappa Alpha Psi that mentored me, there was a gentleman, he's a commissioner in Las Vegas right now, his name is Lawrence Weekly, And he, um, he was a, a great mentor and my Taekwondo teacher, a Kappa. He, of course uh, you did Taekwondo. Of course I did Taekwondo <laughs> and it was free. So, of course, I signed up. <laughs> what did you not do as a child? Anything? <laughs> uh, there, there, a lot of the things that I wanted to do, like play basketball or, or high school sports, I could not afford. Uh, so I worked. You know, mm. so I would work. When I started at the Advanced Technologies Academy, I worked from 5 to 1 a.m., uh, maybe four days a week. And I caught the city bus home, and I got up in the morning. I made it home maybe at 2. I studied on the bus. 
and I got up every morning. I was a little late for school, but I was at school every day, and that was my routine. And on top of being involved in my school activities, my grades suffered a little bit, but I had to help look after my family. I had to help my mother uh, because she was a single parent. So I felt since my dad wasn't in, in the picture, I was the eldest son, so I needed to step up to the plate and do what I needed to do, and I did. Oh, my gosh. If anyone is listening and not feeling incredibly determined <laughs> and inspired and motivated, then there's something wrong with them because that's absolutely amazing and a wonderful reminder, I think, of two things. Firstly, I just finished writing the CZA book and one of the chapters in it is the idea, it's the African proverb, that it takes a village to raise a child but uh -huh. to do anything really, to live a fulfilling life. It's not just your immediate family but the people you choose as your family and the mentors who you look back at and, and remember the direct impact they had on your pathway. But the other thing is also that you are not necessarily the product of your environment and you can be surrounded by violence and you know, gang wars where wearing red and blue is an actual like life threat that we cannot comprehend in Australia. It exists. Yeah, but <laughs> but you can throw yourself into other things and not be swayed by that being in your face all the time. You're you're just su such a wonderful example of the fact that you can defy what is presented to you as maybe the only pathway that other people would take, and go on and become a senator. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, my best friend's mother was my mother, my God, and who we've, you know, I, I proclaimed as my godmother and my, her parents is my godparents. I have an Indian mother from uh, Bombay, India. I have, you know, <laughs> I have uh, uncles and, 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 you know, dads who, who stepped up to the plate and showed me how to lead and how to, to be a man. You know, um, when you don't have a man in the house, it's quite difficult to learn how to be a man if you don't see what the, what a man is supposed to do other than walking around and you see these guys with the pants hanging on the butts and then they're not <laughs> they're not doing anything you know significant in life but you know drinking and smoking and, and gang banging and, and that wasn't what I wanted I did not want to be another statistic mm. so I had to find avenues of, of folks who could guide me and lead me and show me the way and, you know, I'm a, a great man of faith. So my dad was not there. So I always considered God my dad. When I walked through that desert, not knowing if I was going to catch a bullet or get jumped, I just talked to my dad in the sky. And and he was the one that protected me. And and it was serious. It was serious as a heart attack, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, my brother, unfortunately, he um, we weren't so far in age. We were close in age. So he was influenced by the negative. And that's why his life is no longer with us. But I could not take that route again. I could not see myself doing that. I needed to, I needed to be greater and better and an example for, for others. And that was, that was my aim in life. You know, again, you get one, so you have to make the best of it. And you absolutely have. And it is just... <laughs> <Thank God. laughs> so I read that you actually tried out for law school when you graduated rather than going straight into a political career but didn't get in and that that rejection was actually a redirection that obviously you've ended up taking a legal pathway many years later. But I think that sometimes things work out not the way we planned but often better. And 
if you can take that view to any kind of setback or failure, then you can see it, you know, rejection as redirection rather than as a total, you know, it's not a no forever. It's just a no, not right now. So talk us through that decision and that time of your life when, you know, you held these hopes for a legal career, couldn't necessarily take that pathway, but then got elected as a politician. Well, you know, right after I graduated from university, I uh, I applied to law school. I I sat for the LSAT and I was rejected. I did that twice. And I knew then that my dream was not going to come true. I thought it's over, but it never left my heart. Uh, So I had to disconnect to reconnect. So I disconnected and I wanted to give back. You know, I've I was blessed enough to to survive Carry Arms Apartments in Las Vegas, the West Las Vegas project, and God still gave me life. So I wanted to repay that. So I worked with my fraternity and we created a program, a Kappa League program in Wichita, Kansas, that I came through in Vegas. And I wanted this program to be one of the greatest. So I developed the program, worked with a few of my brothers, and I dedicated my life to um, to creating new leaders through through the Kappa, through Kappa Alpha Psi, uh, a Kappa League program in Wichita, Kansas. I also worked at a level six treatment facility uh, for young people who were uh, abused, sexually abused, mentally abused, and uh, physically abused, and, uh, and, and encouraged young people that way, both boys and girls. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to take this political science history degree and make it work. So I walked into Democratic headquarters. <laughs> Just rocked up. Just rocked up. And uh, the director there, his name is Jason Diltz. He uh, he said, hey, how can I help you? I said, well, I want to run for office. And he said, so which office do you want to run for? I said, whatever is open. <laughs> what office is open? <laughs> and, and he said, oh, he, he was so excited to see a young man walk in there. And, uh, and I was serious. Like I say, serious is a heart attack, you know, but I was so serious. And he said, okay, let's set up a meeting with the the chairman of the party. And he has since passed. His name is Lee Kinch. And he's, uh, we set up and we had lunch. And it was that day that Jonathan Wells, who has also passed, he retired by fax. And I just so happened to be living in that district. He was a state representative. So that left an open seat. So uh, I jumped right on it. I didn't have much money after being a college graduate. You know, you're pretty broke. You know, you're you're working for yourself. You're trying to still eat and pay your bills. (laughs) I started knocking on doors. I I got a, you know, I got the constituents to sign a petition. Uh, So you need about 1,500 signatures in order to run without having to pay the filing fee. Some days I selected rainy days and I just went out there in the rain and knocked on doors and people were like, whoa. This cat is, he's very serious. And they said, you know, I'm going to sign this and I'm going to put a, you put a, come bring a yard sign when you raise money, put a yard sign. And in fact, here, here's a check. So right then the community started supporting me. And uh, my uncle was a criminal lawyer in, in Topeka. So the bet's name in Kansas carried a little bit of weight. Uh, I, I, I was living with my grandmother at the time and we just, she was helping me with phone calls and stuff envelopes and and we were running a in-house campaign and just knocking out you know knocking as on many doors as I possibly could registering people to vote 
And before you know it, the checks started coming in, the contributions started coming in. I started putting signs out and I was running against two ladies uh, who were pretty well known. Uh, Tracy Rutledge's husband was a state representative and Olita Faust-Goudot's mother was a community activist, very well known. And I captured 47% of the vote in a three-way primary. <gasps> I became a state representative. Ah! So after um, being elected, I jumped on the governor's campaign, started working to get the governor elected. So we got the governor elected, and then the day came where you're sworn in, and in January, everyone comes back to the state capitol. After all the pomp and circumstance, everyone is, you know, congratulating you. You have family there, you know, taking photos. And then when everyone leaves, you go to your, your new office and you sit down. So one day I walked next door to another state representative. Now, he was the youngest state representative, Joshua Swati, who eventually became the Secretary of Agriculture. I walked next door to his office, I sat down at his desk, and I looked at him, he looked at me, and I said, what do we do now? <laughs> so <laughs> we did all the work to get there, but it just goes to show how experience in politics is very important. You, you don't know anything until you get your hands dirty. You know, a lot of outsiders may say, why don't you do this? Why didn't you vote this way? Why don't you? You don't know until you know. At a young age, I found out quickly that politics is not what the general public thinks it is. It's hard work. It's sacrifice. It's, um, it's, it's dedication. Absolutely. And especially at such a young age and especially I, I think something we all do and in this goal-kicking culture, which is wonderful, it's so exciting to be in a time where people are celebrated for you know, working really hard. But I think it's also we get really caught up in the chase, like to get the position and you focus so hard on like getting there that once you get there, sometimes that happens with any goal in life where you work so hard to achieve it and then you achieve it and you're like, oh, I didn't plan for this scenario. Like now <laughs> what do I do? Exactly. <laughs> so quickly before we move on to moving from the House of Reps to the Senate and the many, many things you were able to achieve in office, for the uninitiated because I found it quite confusing and interesting how I think we share a common language, so we assume Australia and the US are aligned much more closely than politically and culturally we turn out to be. And I actually randomly in my own journey of seizing the A and doing all the different things, I ended up working on Obama's re-election campaign. We flew to New York and, and door knocked in Philly. Oh, like. Right. Literally to get out the vote, because of course it's not compulsory to vote, which is one of the major differences in the political system. Can you give us a quick rundown of how the structure in the US works for people who I think the whole country followed the US election recently, most of us without understanding what the primaries are, what actually happens. So can you point out just the main differences so we understand the rest of the conversation? Okay, so uh, the primary, there's a general and primary. The primary election and I'll go, and it, it applies from local all the way to federal office. The primaries are when the parties fight within themselves in order to pick a candidate who's going to run in that seat. So in my primary, I had a uh, two opponents. There were three Democrats. I captured 47% of the vote in the three-way primary, which means I became the victor of the Democratic Party for the uh, 84th District State Representatives. I did not have a general election. A general is then when you face off with the opposite party. Okay. And whoever wins out of the Democrat or the Republican or the Democrat and the Independent uh, will then go on to serve. So you have your primary election where you fight, you know, within the family. 
and then you the general is when you fight your neighbors right and whoever wins in that in that scenario uh becomes the president the senator the governor the state representative the city council whoever and how long are your terms in state versus the federal election so a state representative and u.s congressman never stops running because you run every two years (gasps) yes exactly so you run every two years. You never stop campaigning. And that's the problem in my assessment. Um, because if you're always campaigning, you really have, you're never off. You're always on. And mm. you have to really work really hard <laughs> to get um, to get through it. Uh, a state senator is four years. A U.S. senator, six years. So the different dynamics is... Um, a governor's four years. The governor, most governors only get two terms. A state representative, a U.S. senator, a state senator, there are no term limits. Okay. So only in the executive offices are there term limits. Um, the governor, which is the executive of the state, and the, the U.S. Um, federal offices of uh, the president. I can Im- two terms. I can imagine that increased certainty allows you to actually do some of the work instead of worrying about just keeping your position because campaigning every like every two years you'd just be campaigning the whole time like when do you have time to do anything else yeah you're always raising money you're always on the phone you you can't have a family uh, as a state representative certainly you cannot you cannot have a family and some people they do just fine with it but i think after my first two years uh, no i served one year in the house and I called my campaign manager and I said, man, I'm done with this. I can't do it anymore. I, I'm done. He said, no, bets, you will. And uh, my team really pushed me to continue on because although I like to serve, the games in, in the political arena are so intense that it just drains the life out of you. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy game. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks luxury, you know, the movies and, and, and all of these, um, <laughs> these shows and stuff, they paint a pretty picture but it is not pretty. It's really messy. Yeah. I I often think that you're just juggling so many balls. You know, most careers are focused on like, this is your skill and you do your skill, but you guys are doing your skill in amongst just relationship management and fundraising. And there's just so much, you just have so many tabs open all the time. And I honestly don't know how any of you, you manage it. So it's amazing that you managed to actually, you know, create change at the same time. (laughs) You know, as a young politician, the old politicians know how to throw traps. They know how to uh, trap you in committee. They know how to uh, get you caught up where you, you make a mistake. And so you have to have mentors within that body, uh, the leadership to say, no, don't do that. There was a senator, Senator Haley, um, when we get to the Senate, he, he said one thing that resonated with me. He said, divide and conquer. Do not let them divide us. Otherwise, they will conquer the agenda. And I, and I took that to heart and I still live with that uh, today. Yeah, wow. So looking back at that time, you spent two years in the House of Reps, then in 2004 became the youngest senator in the history of Kansas, and then that took you through four years to 2008, the year after which you moved to Australia. What was that period of time like and what led to – I always wonder when people decide to make a big quantum shift from one industry to the other – how do you look back at that time now and to any young aspiring politicians and any young aspiring lawyers, talk us through your thinking in those in that chapter? Okay, well, uh, I served one year in the House of Representatives 
And then I was nominated with the American Council of Young Political Leaders, ACYPL, by a a fellow colleague, uh, Representative Rocky Nichols, who um, nominated me to come study the federal and state parliament system here in Australia. And while I was here, I was out, you know, we we traveled to Brisbane, Canberra, Sydney, uh, Townsville, and then my favorite place in the world was, is Melbourne. I mean, I fell in love with Melbourne. The day that I, that we were able to get free and go out, I think Senator Michael Danby was um, the, the Senator for St. Kilda. And he, he recommended that we get out and just go look around St. Kilda and the Republicans, they they wanted to choose where we where we went out this night. So they chose the, the place with the elephant on the building, and which is the elephant in the wheelbarrow. Yes, they, they've just they've just closed down, you know, uh, a couple years ago. But uh, my now wife just so happened to be in there with her friend. They were celebrating a birthday. <laughs> <gasps> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I um, there's a Republican uh, assemblyman named. Uh, Stephen Labriola, and he throws this in my face to this day. But I went over and I said, Steve, I think I see my wife, man. And he said, hold on, big boy. Hold on, big boy. And he, I said, well, you go over and ask her if I can come over and talk to her. And he went, he said, okay, I'll go over. He went over and um, she said, maybe later. So I waited and uh, she left off and, and went to the restroom and came back. I was looking for her and couldn't find her. And then I had made, made up my mind that I would go over there myself and then I would leave. So I went over and I said, hi, my name is Don. I just wanted to uh, introduce myself to you and to, you know, just call me or email me and maybe we can chat. And then I handed her my card. She would not take it. And her friend took it. And I think it gives, it's a, it's a lot of credit to her. I knew I could not approach her at, at first because she just, I knew she was a lady. I knew she did not belong in there. She was just there for some other reason for her friends. And her friend said, uh, who we're still good friends now, she said, she'll call you. She'll, she'll, she'll reach out to you. And, <laughs> and it was nine months later when she reached out to me. And by that time, I'd become a senator. So the Senate race, uh, I, I, left, I left Australia. I get back home to my fraternity brothers. And I said, hey, man, my, my roommate, one of my, my line brothers, I said, hey, man, I, met, I think I met my wife. He said, uh, whatever, Bets. I said, I think I did. He said, what's her name? I said, I don't know. He said, what's her telephone number? I said, I don't know. He said, whatever. So that, that ended that. And, you know, I just always thought about this woman. She just gorgeous and her disposition and her, the way she carried herself was just everything for me. It was, it was everything I needed and I couldn't have it right then. It was like, wow. You know, I I just, it was just like love at first sight. It was most definitely love at first sight. And uh, so I came back home and I jumped right back into, you know, my life as a, as a politician, the eldest Senator at 80 decided to resign. So that left his seat open for the Democrats. He left one year unexpired. So I ran against a city councilman, a very popular city councilman. And the precinct committee captains have to decide who will replace a a sitting senator. Uh, It's a special election. And I captured the vote by one vote. So every vote counts. Uh, Yeah. And I became the youngest senator in the history of Kansas. And then that's when I just started on my, my Senate career. And my goal was to run and win the seat again so that I kept four years so that I could then apply to law school again. And it, so I served my first term and then I get a call on April 1st of the U.S. It would have been April 2nd in, in, in Australia. And my secretary patched, uh, called me in and she said, Senator, there's a call from Australia 
can I patch it through? And I said, sure. So uh, she patched it through and the lady on the other end said, hi, may I please speak to Donald Betts Jr.? No one calls me Donald Betts Jr. They either calls me, call me Senator Betts or Donald or Don, you know? So I'm thinking maybe is it student loans calling to ask me if, you know, <laughs> if I send my payment through or, you know, and I said, ma'am, uh, may I ask who's speaking? And she said, you don't remember my accent? I said, no, ma'am. I'm going to have to disconnect this call if you don't tell me who's speaking. And she said, this is Tanya from Australia. And I didn't know her name, but I knew it was her. Something in me told me it was her. We started talking and I was really excited. I was on my way driving back to Wichita from Topeka. Uh, it was a weekend. And then I started my political brain, my paranoia brain started thinking, is this a setup with the Australian government? I mean, I was just on a, <laughs> I was just on a political mission. Is this a setup? So we, we talked for about an hour or two. Uh, and then I hung up and I didn't call her back. I took her details. I didn't call her back for a week. And then she called me back again on that Friday. And then that's when I was... Uh, getting ready to fly out somewhere and I had some layover time and we were just talking and talking and I found out she was from Sri Lanka and I didn't even know where Sri Lanka was at the time really uh, <laughs> you know she told me about her culture and then we had the same beliefs and we just really started putting the dots together and in that conversation because legislative session is usually over by April May that conversation lasted all the way until August when I thought I would fly in, but then the governor asked me to stay on to work on her campaign. I'd finished, I won. My election was around the corner. November, I captured 71% of the vote. I was good. I was solid. That November election, I flew to Australia. And then that's when, yeah, that, and that's when we, uh, we established a relationship and we were back and forth for five years. And um, I flew to Sri Lanka, asked her father for a hand in marriage. And and, uh, and it was the whole big deal. She was coming to the U.S., met my family. I, I was flying to Sri Lanka and Australia to meet her family. And now we have two kids and a, and a mortgage and all that other stuff when it comes to marriage. I know I'm supposed to be more impressed by the overcoming gang culture, becoming the first senator, but I, actually the love story is making me so, like, emotional. This is amazing. Yeah, we uh, we had a good time. We got married in the U.S. All of her friends flew in from all over the world. And, and then we took all of our guests to Disneyland. <gasps> Yeah, we rented three vans and went to Disneyland and Vegas and, the, you know, all you hit the spots on the West Coast. Shut and then we up. Back. Yeah, I mean, we we really wanted to bless them as well because they had come so far to bless us. So we uh, we wanted to give them, you know, share with them our, our love for them as well. Oh, my God. How's your mates that were like, oh, you haven't met your wife? And then you're like, <laughs> told you nine months later, but yeah, still. <laughs> they were really, I mean, they talked to her on the phone all the time and they were really supportive. And when she come to visit, the, the, the wives of my friends will take her out. And, you know, it was, it was, it was nice. It was really nice. It was oh a good experience. Gosh. Oh, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and the reason I ended up in Australia is I, uh, I decided after it was, my four years was up. So I did five years as a senator. And I thought, okay, uh, I can run for re-election to the Senate and then resign within, you know, one year or, or whatever, or I can run for U.S. Congress. So I said, okay, to my wife, I said, hey, I'll make a promise to you that I'll run for U.S. Congress. If I win, then we'll move you to Washington, D.C. with me. If I lose, I'll pack up, I'll give up everything, all that I have built for myself. I'll give everything up and I'll move to Australia. Oh Start God. all over again. That is romance. <laughs> And then the governor reached out to me and she said, uh, Donald, here's an application. You can come work with the Obama administration because I ran on that ticket. 
And I showed my wife and she said, but honey, you promised. And I said, I did promise. So we packed, I packed up, sold everything and moved to Australia. Oh my God, that's the best story ever. <laughs> and what? Can you believe that? I can't actually believe that. That is can't insane either. that you you met at the freaking elephant and wheelbarrow. Like what? Yeah, she was not interested. She had no interest <laughs> in meeting anyone. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And now you've done the full circle and done your JD at Monash. I'm a Monash girl, so I'm so unbelievably proud that we now <laughs> have... <laughs> Senator Donald Betts as one of our alums. <laughs> I love much. They gave me the opportunity. You know, when I was in the Senate, I applied for law school again in Washburn because my uncle was a graduate of Washburn. And I had the Supreme Court Justice of Kansas, the governor, write me recommendation letters and they still refused admission. I still <gasps> have those letters, you know, and it just broke me because I was willing to give up the Senate to study law. Mm. But life takes us through a path that will help us along the way. And the fact that I'm a former senator has opened a lot of doors for me, even here in Australia. So we don't know which way life is going to take us. We just have to walk in it. We have to walk in that dominion. Absolutely. That is everything this show is about, is understanding the twists and turns life is meant to take. If we all got smoothly to the place we thought we would, like the richness of your experience is stripped away. So I, I love exactly. I love that message and reminder that you you were meant to go through all the, the hurdles and obstacles and diversions away from law to get to the career that you have now. Yes. So how has your relationship to success changed through those chapters and those careers and the rejections and redirections now that you have ultimately lived the dream and are living the dream you've had since childhood really? What does that feel like and how does that, you know, sometimes I do think we get to the destination and, and it's a bit overwhelming because you don't, you never planned like for what happens after that. How do you now measure your success or, or is success even a metric that you use? Well, I, I often go back to what my, grand, my grandparents told me. My grandfather said, get all you can and can all you get. And I took that as get all you can, your knowledge, your finances, your network, Put them in a can. One day you may need to go into that can and pull out your resource or, or some finance or your savings or whatever. And my grandmother told me two things. She said, boy, if you ever get high on that horse, I'm going to get a ladder, climb up there and knock you off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my fraternity brother once asked my grandmother, are you proud of Don that he's graduated and he was president and all of this stuff? And she said, I'm proud <laughs> of him and all, but that's what he's supposed to do. Right. So. I look at success as just, you know, achievement. And it's something that I'm supposed to do. It's something that we're all supposed to do. And I keep it humble that way so that I could relate to those that and be able to encourage those that haven't graduated from high school to help to build the smallest of us so that we can all grow together. I've seen the gutter, what it looks like, and I've seen what uber wealth looks like. I've been in those rooms and at those boardroom tables. At the end of the day, we're all people. We all have that one life. And those of us that make the best of it, we achieve more. Those of us that choose not to make the best of that one life, they have to answer that for themselves. At the end of the day, we are the masters of our fate and the captain of our soul. We can steer the, the journey. We just need to walk one foot after the other. And so as it relates to success, I'm grateful and I'm immensely blessed. But I think I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't know. I just, you know, like all of these things, Senator, this and that, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy, I'm <laughs> proud, but 
it was a lot of work. <laughs> I think something that also really stands out about you is the ability to acknowledge the really hard work and the and the hard times and the obstacles you've had to face without taking away from the fact that it has been really hard, but without sort of lamenting them and wallowing in that and yeah. just pushing through and being like, I still ended up where I am. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I'm in my right place. And, and you know, I'm, I don't give myself enough credit. I'm, I'm harder on myself than anyone could ever be. So no one could say anything to d- damper my spirits because there's a critic in me that is more that criticizes me than, than anyone else. And you talk about mental health and all of that. Sometimes we're our, our biggest oppressor. We don't give mm-hmm. ourselves enough credit for the effort that we put forth. And I drive myself to the end, to the point of when I hit the bed at night, I instantly knock out. And those that love me say, you need to slow down. You need to relax. You need to. I was just only going to take a a small amount of time off for the break. And I have all of this leave accumulated and I'm a new lawyer. So he, uh, Peter Cash, awesome, amazing lawyer, litigator at Norton Rose. I, I give it up to him. He's he's fantastic. Bevin Melman at Jeremy Legal. Brothers, you know, they've really kind of pushed me and, and supported me. But Peter says, no, you're going to take a month off, you know, because he knows <laughs> in five years I haven't had a break. You know, so yeah. he selected the time I would take off. And I'm immensely grateful for, you know, but <laughs> my son and daughter are like, Daddy, you're going to have some time for us? And now it's their time. Well, that's what that whole middle section, the NATA, we've kind of covered most of it in the chat itself. But the big question that I I had, and I'm sure most other people listening were like, how do you fit it all in without burning out? And I see it takes other people to impose rest breaks on you. <laughs> and it's, it's just that indomitable spirit of purpose because mm-hmm. I lost my brother at 33. I lost my big cousin who's been a brother to me at uh, 49 and my, my father passed away. I know how short mm-hmm. life can be. And there's so much to be done. And so I try not to allow too much time to slip away. You know, there's so much to do in the time that we have on earth. So I try to fill that in with something significant. If I'm going to do something with my children, I want it memorable. I want them to have a good time. I want them to cherish the moment. And and that's how I live. (laughs) That's the perfect segue to the last section, which is your play TA and how you make the most of the hours that you don't spend working and that you do spend separating your identity from productive Don who's achieving and being a senator and being a lawyer. I mean, nothing you've done has been not high achieving. Like every single thing you do, you throw yourself 1,000 million percent at it. (laughs) And I think it's hard for driven people to make time for the person they are when they're not that achieving person. But if you work to sleep and sleep to work and then you work and die, like that's just not what this life is about. So what do you do that's separate to your working identity? How do you play? And just, I kind of think it's the activities that make you forget what time it is, which is so rare in this day and age. But what do you do for fun? Well, I I go bike riding with my son. Uh, I play, I do crafts with my daughter. Uh, we draw, we write, we do whatever, you know, those things. We go swimming, you know, with the kids. Just the other day, my wife and I got all dressed up. You know, I put a tux on, she wore a sari. We went out, we went to a wedding and we just made the best of it. We had a blast. We had a good time. And we hadn't done that in years because both of us are the type that are giving to others. We give more to others and family members than we give to each other. Mm. And we needed to pour that into our marriage because sometimes you forget about the person you want to spend the rest of your life with and you assume that they will always be there. But it takes a nurturing 
in order to build that relationship and keep it strong. We've we've learned that. So we've gone through some challenges together, uh, both of us. But as a individual, I like, you know, back home, I would have got with my boys, my fraternity brothers. They, they you know, they say, bets, put it down. Now get in the car, get in the car. We're going to move you in the car. I'm like, okay, let's go. And then it will go have a good time. But um, I liked, I would love to just, my ultimate goal one day is to buy a beach house, a beach house that is overlooking the ocean and I can wake up and sit in peace and serenity and just watch the ocean and read a good book Mm. and just relax Mm. peacefully, quietly, you know, allow my thoughts to fall on paper. Yeah. For me, that would be the ultimate holiday and I'll get there one day. I just have to keep working hard. I trust that you will. I trust that anything you say you do, you'll do. (laughs) You absolutely will do at some point. (laughs) So I'm conscious of time. I could talk to you forever, but I will wrap up with a couple of last questions. But one that just came to mind is the fact that a lot of conversations this year have been very swept away. In podcast land, you have your own podcast, which I haven't even had a chance to ask you about. But I mean, you know, just from being around and being a political commentator in a lot of cases, how much politics has dominated the conversation this year and how much race and ethnicity and discrimination and equality have become also very big topics this year. And I actually love that we got to the end of this conversation without mentioning any of those things. And I think that that's almost the message I have wanted to push more this year, that not everything has to be about your position as an African-American in society and let's get your commentary on the George Floyd protests and, <laughs> and the US election. Like that's, of course, what everyone wants to ask you about, but I actually loved finding out all the other things about you because there are other places we can go and, and hear your opinion on those things. But one thing I did want to ask is, have you found it jarring or... Uh, in any way, is there anything notable about the experience of moving from America to Australia? Because last week's episode was an Australian woman and model who moved to New York, so the opposite direction to you, because she found her mixed race and darker skin made the opportunities more abundant in the States than the reverse. Her father is from the French island of Réunion, so she's mixed race, she has quite dark skin, and, and she just found that, yeah, the opportunities were more abundant in the other direction. So coming this way, have you found, you know, what has your experience been in that area? Oh, no. Uh, and I don't, I, don't, um, I, don't allow, I don't allow those things to hinder me. Um, if I come to a brick wall, as you can see, I mean, it was, I was rejected from law school, uh, multiple times I was, and I could have said it's because I'm black. I could have said the reason why this is happening is because I'm black. There may be some credit to that, but I don't allow that to stop me. Uh, and I think uh, at the end of the day, <laughs> we have to, um, I have the philosophy. When you come to a brick wall and, you know, you have you have the wolves at your heels and there may be a mile or two away, maybe an hour away from you. And they're coming to, they're coming for blood and you're at a brick wall. What do you do? Do you turn around and face them and just take your fate and die? Or do you figure out how to get on the other side of that wall? Do you dig under it? Do you try to crawl over it? Do you try to go around it or do you break right through it? If I can't get around it, over it, or under it, I will break through it. I will find a way to get to the other side. And that is life. 
you know, if we constantly, you know, bring up the excuses and the reasons for our failures, we will have no reason to succeed. So my goal is to succeed and achieve at whatever cost, you know, until your last breath, try to survive, try to get on the other side. And a lot of people don't see opportunities. They only see barriers and walls. I see opportunities where there are walls. You know, maybe I can find and gather some folks that are experiencing the same problem and we can pull each other over. We can lift each other up. There's a way to get to the other side. There's a way to get the ear of those decision makers. And you just have to be willing to put in the work and get it done. We give up too easy in this society. There is no excuse. I mean, you know what? There is no excuse. There will always be race. There will always be racism and prejudice. But if we allow those things to get in our way, we will never, ever achieve anything. I mean, I could have said that. I was one of two African-Americans in the Kansas Senate. I was the only African-American in, the, as a, in my university to become student body president. Australia, I was the first African-American to achieve the JD. If I allowed, you know, those little sly remarks and, you know, individuals not liking who I am because of the color of my skin prevent me from wanting to achieve, I'd be dead or in prison. Oh my gosh. I mean, come on, people. We, we have to go get it. My fraternity taught us what excuses meant. Excuses are tools of the incompetent, used to build monuments of nothingness. And those who specialize in them seldom amount to anything. Oh, my gosh. Donald, <laughs> my last question was, what's your favorite motivational quote? But I feel like everyone should just write down what you just said. And the motivational quote of the day can be by <laughs> Donald Betts, because that was absolutely incredible. You're just an incredible human being. Thank you so much for your time. I have one more for you. <gasps> if you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but don't think you can, it's almost a sense you won't. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster men, but sooner or later, the man who wins is the fellow who thinks he can. Oh my gosh. Mike, drop. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, you're awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. There couldn't be anything better to share with people as they contemplate a new year, a clean slate and a fresh start than your absolute wisdom. Thank you so much again. And if you can put Greenland in your show notes, that'd be great. You know, uh, Greenland, the podcast where we explore the similarities and differences between Australia and the United States. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that was what it was about. <laughs> As you know, you know, I already picked your brain about this earlier in the show. I think it's so fascinating how similar we think we are, but just how many differences there actually are structurally. So I can only imagine how fascinating your podcast must be. So everyone listening, absolutely tune in. I will include the link in the show notes as well. Don, thank you so much again. You've just been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much. If you aren't obsessed by Don by now, I don't think you were listening properly. I love conversations that stretch my brain and I could almost feel the mental gymnastics going on in my head as I listened to him speak so passionately about his values, priorities and passion for making the most out of life. What a great Caesar of the A. <laughs> 
please do keep on sharing the episodes you enjoy, tagging us so that we know what you thought, or take a moment to subscribe to the podcast or leave us a review if you haven't yet. It was actually surprising how many people who took the survey and loved the show couldn't believe that they hadn't taken a moment to leave a review. And I'm guilty of doing that, of course, as well. It's so easy to forget, but it only takes a couple of seconds and really, really helps us keep growing the neighborhood and also lets our guests know what you learned from them giving their time to the show. I will be back shortly with an intro to our new segment too, which is also the product of the Servier. I have tried to take on as much feedback as possible and can't wait for a bigger and brighter 2021. Hope you're all having an amazing start to the year and are seizing your yay.